Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as we continue to work our way through the text. We find ourselves in chapter 4. We started into chapter 4 last week, uh, and uh, we looked at the first five verses. This morning, we're going to look, we're going to really focus in on verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. But again, that is... uh, That's a long, complex sentence in the Apostle Paul that begins back still in verse 2. So even though I'm focusing in on verses 6, 7, and 8, we can't really understand it or appreciate it without still continuing to look back at the verses we touched on last week. So just to remind you of where we are in the text, we'll just read verses 1 to 8 one more time, and then we'll pray and we will ask God to help us through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, because we can never understand the depth or the beauty of God's Word unless He helps us to see what is there to be seen. And so we'll ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll get to work. So Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, well, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes David, King David, in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this word to us this morning, Lord. God, help us to know the truth that our sins have been fully carried away and your righteousness has been given to us. Help us to rest in that today by believing you in what you say in the word. Father, we pray your spirit would just shine upon this text to illuminate its truth and its beauty that we may behold great and marvelous things from what you say in your word. And we also pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to strengthen our faith in what you have spoken and to be encouraged by it. God, do this, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a bit of a miracle. It's a miracle upon miracles that... Anyone should be supernaturally healed, but they were living at an incredible time in which everyone was being supernaturally healed. It is the first century, it is Israel, it is Galilee, and there is a man walking around healing everyone. Now, in this particular society, in this particular culture, it is suspected that if you have a disease of any kind, it is the result of sin. And so you are diseased, therefore there is something wrong with you, and the Pharisees are teaching that you are a sinner, that your disease is the result of your sin, and therefore you are estranged from God. 
And then comes a prophet whom many suspect is more than a prophet. He's a savior. And he is healing everyone freely and teaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Some Pharisees get together and they begin to bicker amongst themselves and they begin to pose the question, why does this man eat with sinners? And Jesus, when he heard it, said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoting from Hosea chapter 6. My prayer for you this morning, First Baptist Church, all of us have baggage. All of us have sin that we have carried into this relationship with Christ. And we understand that Christ dies on the cross and he gives us righteousness, but we cannot help but wonder, knowing our propensity for sinning, we cannot help but wonder that even though Christ has given us his righteousness, is it really true? Could it really be possible that he has sent our sins fully away? I think that when we wrestle with this question, we continue to struggle with the same thing that the Pharisees struggled with, and it is this desire to make ourselves righteous in the Lord's eyes. There's every call and every cause for us to strive to be holy. But First Baptist Church, hear me this morning and hear the word of God this morning. Jesus desires to have a personal relationship with you. That's the meaning of this passage from Hosea. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, and he is not asking for sacrifice because he has provided all that is necessary for you to know him and to love him. Look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 4. This from the pen of a man who murdered Christians who was himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, he writes, what was it that Abraham found? What did he discover? He found that God counts righteousness where a person has faith. Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. And then he quotes Psalm 32, and in verse 8, it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. One of the most beautiful thoughts in the Bible, which is expressed here in our text today, is this quote from the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you're going to see this word counted over and over and over again in this particular chapter. And it's important for us to get a real grasp on what this word means. The King James translates this passage by saying that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's how the ESV renders it. The New King James, the newer version of the King James changes this to read that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. The net translation, the New English translation, has it Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And various other translations, some, some will say it was imputed to him, it was counted to him. And uh, of course, we have Kenneth Wiest's expanded translation, which says, Abraham believed God and it was put to his account 
as righteousness. And all of these things, we're dealing with the same word that various people are translating in different ways, whether we're talking about counting or accounting or crediting or imputing. This word that is translated all these different ways in the original Greek is the word logizomai. It's used 41 times in the New Testament. So we see it quite a bit. It's used 35 times by the Apostle Paul himself, and it's used 19 times in the book of Romans alone. But here within this chapter, chapter 4, it's going to be used 11 times out of the 19 total times that it's used in the whole book. You see it in verses 3, you see it in verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 11, 22, verses 23, and again in verse 24. It is shotgunned all throughout this chapter. I started off counting, you know, you see it in verse 3, 4, 5, and then I realized I had to stop using my fingers because we go all the way up to verse 24 in this chapter, and I can't make, like, that just gets confusing at that point. The point is, logizomai, counting, is one of the major, if not the major, theme of chapter 4. God seems to be an accountant of sorts. That's how we arrive at this understanding of God because of the way Paul is using this term to talk about how God is measuring, weighing our sins and our righteousness. This same word, logizomai, is used in Luke chapter 22 where it says that Christ was numbered, the ESV translates it, numbered among the sinners and the transgressors. In the book of Acts, in the account of the harangue in which Demetrius is slamming the Apostle Paul, he goes on to explain to the silversmiths in Ephesus who are forging this, these idols of the, of the goddess Diana that uh, it is wrong, he says to the silversmiths, that Diana should be despised. He says, why should we let Diana fall into this ill repute because of this Apostle Paul's preaching? This word despised is not the actual word that is used there. It's logizomai. And so the silversmith is saying, why should we allow our goddess to be counted as nothing? And so this word, over and over again, has to do with the way that we evaluate something, with the way that we count something, the way we measure something. We have it as plain as possible, just looking at the meaning of this word that God has Looking at the fixed meaning of this word in the context of the whole chapter, God has made a very precise and mathematical calculation, if you will, in which he has looked at our lives and he has reckoned up all of the sins, the things we've done, the thoughts we've had, the things that we should have done, which we have not done, the things we've left undone, the thoughts and the praise and the worship we should have expressed, which we failed to express, God has counted and numbered all of these things. In a sense, you might say that he has like a ledger book, and your name is written there, and just like any bank record, any transfer book, we don't really use those things anymore because we all have debit cards, and we're just boop, 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 doing the tap, But I can remember a day, and I I bet most of the folks 35 and older in the room can remember that day, long ago now it seems, in which you had a register, you had a checkbook, and you'd flip it open, and on the top there would be these paper 
You know, for you younger millennials here, this is going to sound crazy to you, but there used to be paper checks that you actually would write. It would say, pay to the order of, and you'd write whatever, and you'd write the amount. And then if you were faithful to maintain your accounts correctly, right under that in the same checkbook would be a register in which you would write out the amount that you took out of your bank account when you wrote whatever check. Because you write a check, it's just a piece of paper, and it is money you have to pay that person now, even though you just wrote them a check. That person is going to go home and maybe sit on that check for a day or two and, and then deposit it. Sometimes that person might sit on that check for months on end and then deposit it. And if you're like me, you can remember not keeping the most accurate accounting of all the checks you had written. And then one day, boom, you're overdraft. And you're like, what happened? All my money is gone and I now owe even more money. It's because you didn't keep a, fair, a faithful record of your books. It appears here as we're looking at this passage that God counts closely. The fact that this particular word, which has to do with counting, is used so many times, indicates to us that he's keeping a record. And we don't find it just here in Romans chapter 4. We find that this idea is supported throughout the rest of the Scriptures. There is an accounting that is kept, most famously in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is also understood as the roll call, if you will, of all those who have believed in Christ and were chosen from before the foundation of the world to inherit eternal life. The Scriptures tell us that if your name is in that book, it can never be erased, but your name is in an accounting book, in this case known as the Lamb's Book of Life. But then again, there are other books which are mentioned. For example, in Malachi 3.16, There is a book of remembrance. It's called a book of remembrance. And Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They whispered with one another, so to speak. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So he is tracking what we do. Now, I have to step back from this, and I just got to tell you, like, God has omniscient knowledge. He knows everything. He never forgets anything. And yet the scriptures are presenting him as recording certain things in a book. The power of these images is so great in my mind that they can't merely be, as far as I'm concerned, metaphors for God's knowledge. Now, God is truthful. He speaks what is true. He knows everything. He never forgets anything. And therefore, when we stand before him in judgment, and he begins to recount for us the record of our lives, we could trust that he would do so perfectly, accurately, righteously, without forgetting anything. But at the same time, it's as though God, even though he doesn't need to just do this from memory, though he could just do it from memory, it's as though there is something in these books, some kind of tangible piece of evidence that he's wanting to present to us as his saints Not only does he know things, but he wants us to know, I understand it from these metaphors, these images used in Scripture, that even though he knows things, there is still a record that is kept that everyone can objectively look at. And he speaks of the record of those who will not go to heaven. In Revelation chapter 20, 
the Apostle John has this vision of the great throne room in heaven. And the court is called to order and the docket is announced and people are called forward. And John writes in Revelation 20, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the Lamb's book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, the other books, according to what they had done. And John goes on to say, if any man's name was not found in the Lamb's book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And so we see then that there is an accounting that is taking place here. In every single person in this room, there is a record that has been kept of our lives. Everything that we've done, every attitude we've had, every action we've engaged in, everything we were called to do, but which we failed or neglected to do, and God has kept a record. Paul poses this question. What did Abraham discover? What did Abraham learn? What did he find? And he answers it. Abraham was stunned to find when he was allowed to consider the record that God had credited him with righteousness. What an amazing and shocking discovery Abraham must have had. When we consider the saints of the Old Testament, as we consider saints today, there is no whitewashing it, guys. We look at Abraham. Here was a guy that went on a journey, and his one job was to be true to his wife and have children. And one of the first things that happens, they go down to Egypt, and he sees that the Egyptians think his wife is very, very beautiful. And he's like, here, have her. You can take her for your wife. That doesn't sound like Prince Charming, does it? And it certainly does not uphold the plan that God had for his life. Listen, just one thing you got to do, have a child, and don't worry, I know you're 90, 100 years old, I will take care of it. He wasn't faithful, but it's not just Abraham, look at Moses. Moses, the great champion, the great hero who led Israel out of captivity in Egypt, he started off his life as a murderer, trying to take God's plan into his own hands, trying to force the issue in his own time. He struck down an Egyptian slave master, killed him in cold blood. Not just Moses. We can go down through all of the patriarchs. Whether we're talking about Jacob being sly and crafty and manipulative, whether we're talking about David being an adulterer, any of these people you look at, they were sinners. And one of the reasons we know that God's word is true is because it doesn't attempt to whitewash any of this. It presents these people in all of their sinfulness. You say, nobody's perfect. Yes, the word of God agrees with you. Those not named Jesus, nobody is perfect. The problem is that when we use this expression, when we say nobody is perfect, we tempt to use it in such a way as to justify ourselves in our imperfection. And what Abraham discovered, what verse 2 tells us, verses 2 and 3 tells us, is that what Abraham discovered was when he considered his own unrighteousness, and he indeed was an unrighteous man, a sinner, the same as you and me, but when he looked, he discovered to his great surprise that God had credited him with righteousness because he believed 
God. That is the reality of salvation. I've shared with you that I didn't keep the best records when I had my first bank account, when I had my first checking account. I can remember graduating high school. I had a bank account for a couple of years at this point. You're allowed to open it when you're 16, at least in that day and age. That's what the rule was. And I'd had one since I was 16, and I graduated high school. I can remember I was uh, getting ready to go off to university, and I was getting my money together in order to pay tuition, and I looked into my bank account, and I was stunned to find $5,000 in there, which I had not put in there. It was shocking to me. And I went through my register, and there's this moment where you're like, huh, maybe I'm really a good worker, and I, I really did well, and I just get lost track of how much money I was making. You know, you kind of start to pat yourself on the back and think, woohoo, I did great, I saved. Go back through the register. Add up all your expenses, all of your debits. And do you know what I found? No, that money went there. That money got there some other way besides me. I went down and I talked to the teller. I said, excuse me, I think that there's been a mistake. I think that the bank has given me money that I don't deserve. And the teller kind of, you know, they have glasses on. They kind of look over you, over, they, you, know, look over you top of the glasses like, okay, young man, little young 18-year-old punk kid, what are you thinking here? And, of course, their assumption is always the same. This guy doesn't know how to keep his records straight. She pulls up my file, types away on her keyboard there. Somebody gave me a gift of $5,000 to help out with university. And to this day, I have no idea who it is, although I have pretty good suspicion that it was one of my grandparents. Can you imagine that joy? I want to go to university. I have to pay my first tuition check. My first bill is two grand. I've just barely saved up enough money to pay that first installment. You're like, I got all the money I need. I'm good for the first semester. You write that check, and then you're like, there's still $5,000 in there. You're like, whoa, that's awesome. There was joy, and there was happiness. There was blessing. I didn't do anything to deserve it, but someone just gave it to me. That's what Paul is saying happened to Abraham. He looked. He's not a perfect man. He is a sinner. And he knew as he was walking before the Lord, I am not going to make the cut. God made him a promise. In your offspring, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Abraham understood from the gospel that had been preached as far back as Adam and Eve that a child would be coming that would crush the serpent and defeat sin and do away with the curse. And here is God the Father saying to him, your child will be that child. And he believed. And then he looked at his bank account and lo and behold, he was righteous. That's what the text is telling us. Now, we come to this gospel, you and me, just like Abraham, and we think to ourselves, okay, Jesus lived a life of righteousness, and when he dies on the cross, I believe in him, and he credits me with his righteousness. But then very quickly, almost immediately afterwards, as we're beginning to rejoice and celebrate in this news, we say to ourselves, yeah, but wait a second. I still struggle with sin. 
I mean, yeah, okay, Jesus has given me righteousness, but I still sinned and I still continue to sin. And even though God has given me his righteousness, and and that's fantastic, there is this huge credit to my account. I also know that God is holy. I know that he's pure. And even though you can give me infinite righteousness, I still have sin. And even though I have this amazing, infinite gift of righteousness, surely God, in his eternal vision, can see that speck of sin. It, compale, it pales in comparison to God's righteousness, but surely God is able to see it, right? And, and surely, even though I've been given this amazing righteousness, surely God is probably still iffy about accepting me into his presence because I know that I still struggle and I still have sin. Paul says, here's what Abraham discovered. He found... That when he checked his account with God, God had credited him with righteousness. And then he makes this amazing statement. Look back at the text in verse 6. Just as David found something. Abraham looked at his account and he found, man, I've got infinite righteousness here. Guess what? David looked at his account and he found something as well that surprised him. And then he quotes Psalm 32. He says, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So again, we're using the same language as what was used to describe Abraham. It isn't what he does. It's his faith in God, and he's given righteousness. But look at what David discovers. He not only discovers a credit, but he also discovers there's been a debit. Just as Abraham received something into his account, David looks and he discovers something has been taken out of his account. Look at what he says here in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Now, look closely at verse 8. He says in verse 8, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not Count, see that word count? He will not count his sin. Guys, your account of sin is totally emptied. And your account of righteousness is infinitely full. You sit there and you say to me, I am a sinner and I know I have the righteousness of Christ, but I'm pretty sure I still have some wicked things in my life and God is going to see those wicked things and there's an impurity in this righteousness and there's no way God in his holiness can hold me up and bring me into heaven. Wrong. Jesus has done something really, really spectacular. No other religion in the world talks about this. Whether we're looking at Buddhism, whether we're looking at Islam, whether we're looking at any other religion or philosophy or ideology, what they all do is they all attempt to say, you know what, we're all imperfect, we all have our flaws, we're all human. They make these statements and they say, you know, from that we need to have grace for each other. The problem is, is that in making these arguments, what we are doing is we are lowering the standard of God. We're either making light of our sin, which is what it is, or the same side of the coin, the flip side of that coin, we're making light of God's holiness. And what happens to so many of us as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we get a taste of God's word, the Holy Spirit starts to open our eyes, and we realize, man, I've been given a gift, but we struggle with guilt because we think, 
Whew, I still got sin in my life. And it's true. We still struggle with sin. But guess what? Not only has God given you the gift of righteousness, an enormous credit, but he is not counting your sin. It's not in your bank account anymore. It is not in the books that God is keeping. As far as he's concerned, there is the Lamb's book of life. And the way he counts you, the way he does his bookkeeping in your life is that now your name is written in that book. Which means that the other book stays shut. But can't God still see into that book? He could. But there's no need for him to look into that book. Your sin has been paid for. Your sin has been dealt with. It's been dealt with by Jesus. I want you to look very closely now at verses 7 and 8. It says in verse 7, Blessed or happy is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. I want you to underline that. Your lawless deeds are forgiven. And in the very next stanza, it says, and those whose sins are covered. Both of these statements, your lawless deeds or your wickedness or your evil is forgiven. Your lawless deeds, your, your sins are covered. And all of this leads up to the conclusion in verse 8, which is this. Blessed, that is happy, is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. The word that we have here for forgive is actually uh, the same Greek word that we use for send. When the Lord was speaking his parables in Matthew chapter 13, it says that he's preaching to the multitude from a boat. And we read then that when he was done preaching, he sent the multitude away. He sent them away. And that is the exact same word that we have here, which is translated for forgiven. Many people just don't understand the nature of salvation, the doctrine of grace, because they just don't realize that God has made it possible, listen closely now, God has made it possible to separate the sin from the sinner. Okay, God has made it possible to take your sin away from you and to look at you as an individual over here and to deal with your sin as separated from you over there. God has taken the sins from the believer and he has put them on the Lord Jesus Christ and there on the cross, God has punished those sins. He has done justice by pouring out his wrath on Jesus in your place. And therefore, your sins have been dealt with. As Paul says in chapter 3, God is both just, he is righteous, he is holy, he upholds that holiness, but at the same time, he has dealt with your sin by separating it from you, dealing with it on Jesus, and now looking at you as being debt-free. My wife and I bought a house 10 years ago, $330,000. For many of you in this room, you're thinking, wow, that was a steal. It was 10 years, well, it was market value 10 years ago, but by today's numbers, it was a steal. I was talking to my wife just the other day, I said, how much money do we still owe on that house? After 10 long, hard years, 
We still owe quite a bit. <laughs> and I think to myself, how old will I be when I pay it off? And then I stop thinking those thoughts because I don't want to know. I don't want to know. God has separated you from your sin. The debt you owe has been taken from you, and it's been paid. I was talking to the Lord this last week, and I said, Lord, it'd be a great illustration for the church if I could look into my mortgage and supernaturally find that it's been paid off entirely. (laughs) So I looked, and the Lord laughed and was like, nah, I don't think so. I owe my mortgage, but you know what I don't owe? I don't owe justice. And neither do you if you believe in Jesus. All of this is first presented to us in the scriptures. The scapegoat, the patsy, the fall guy. We live in a day and an age in which we're all conspiracy theorists, and you know, given everything that's happened over the last three years, we have reason to be conspiracy theorists at this point. And we're all looking... In any good conspiracy, somebody has done a wrong, but they don't want to be held accountable for it, so they have to point to someone else. Going all the way back to JFK. Oswald assassinates JFK, but then he claims that he's just the patsy and that someone else has actually done it. And what he's alluding to is this biblical idea of a scapegoat, the fall guy, someone else who's going to take the blame so that you don't have to. The reference is found in the book of Leviticus. And so as we look at the book of Leviticus, and you don't have to flip there, just listen. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 21 to 22, the description of this scene is presented to us so that we will understand that indeed God separates sin from the sinner. And we have here what William Tyndale, as he was translating the Bible into the, one of the first English translations that we have, we have here what we refer to as a scapegoat. Now, up until William Tyndale, that word simply did not exist. There's a goat, he sees it in the scripture, and he does something interesting, which is when Tyndale is trying to translate it, he's trying to invent a term to describe it, and he comes up with the term scapegoat. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 to 22, it says, Aaron, this is God giving instructions to Moses, it says, Aaron, who is the great high priest, he shall lay both of his hands on the head of a live goat, and he will confess over it all of the iniquities of the people and all of their transgressions and all of their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat, and then he will send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free out into the wilderness, where it is presumed that somehow the goat probably ends up dying, or maybe he lives. But the point is, is he's carrying your sins away. This is a beautiful picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his complete dealing with our sins for us. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is our fall guy. I never want to say this in normal conversation because I find it to be disrespectful and I would never talk of our Lord this way, but to quote Oswald, in a sense, Jesus is our patsy. Now, the way Oswald uses the term, he's talking about somebody that is a dupe that's been tricked into it that now is going to inevitably have to bear the consequences course, Jesus was not tricked or duped. 
When we say Jesus was our fall guy, when we say Jesus was our scapegoat, we might say he was our patsy, but I'd encourage you not to say that because he did so knowingly. He did so knowingly. William Moeller, who's a preeminent scholar in Bible translation, says that the goats, there were two goats, they present two sides of the same thing. The second goat, the scapegoat, is necessary to make clear what the first one, which previously had been slain, the second goat is necessary to make clear what the first one can no longer represent, which is namely the complete removal of sin. He goes on to say further, the fact that the goat is accompanied by somebody that, you remember in the passage of Leviticus, it says you're going to pray over this goat, you're going to put all your sins on him, and then the goat is going to be handed to a man who is in waiting. In other words, they're not going to have this ceremony where they put their sins on the scapegoat and then they say, amen, and then the scapegoat just sits there and bleats and continues to wander around munching on grass. No, no, no. You're going to pray over this goat and then you're going to have a guy ready who's going to put a collar on this thing, put a leash on this thing, and drag him out of the camp far away and you're never going to see that goat ever again. And he's the scapegoat bearing your sins. And so Muller makes this comment. He says, the fact that the goat is accompanied by somebody and that it is to be taken to an uninhabited place is to indicate the absolute impossibility of its return. The guilt has been absolutely forgiven and forever erased. It is a deep thought that is made objectively evident in the transparent manner of sending this goat away. He goes on, he says, in the personal interpretation, we could have, in addition to this idea of the removal of our guilt, the removal of all of our sins, also a second idea. Namely, that Satan can do no more harm to the people of God. There are no accusations he can make which will stand. Satan must be content with nothing more than this scapegoat. And in our case today, Satan must be content with nothing more than the majesty of our King and our Savior. Jesus has buried our sins far away. We sing that song, O Glorious Day. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. It's as though God has taken everything you've ever done. He's thrown it into the deepest ocean. And just for extra measure, he's put up a sign that says no fishing. At church, you're forgiven. Over the last three years, we've all struggled. We've all come to bad habits and bad practices. I've been approached by a number of people who say, you know, I'm just struggling to have a hard time. I'm having a hard time. I've stopped reading my Bible regularly. I stopped praying regularly. We weren't allowed to go to church for so long. I didn't go to church for so long. I've fallen into some bad habits. I, I'm struggling just to get out to church on Sunday, you know, and, and I see that I need all of these things, that I'm, I'm supposed to be involved in all of these things, but I've... I've kind of fallen off of it a bit for the last year or two or three. And the question is put to me like this, Pastor, 
can I come back? I recognize that some of these things were sin. I was saved before the pandemic. I'm ashamed at how glibly I've treated my walk with the Lord during the pandemic. I'm going to carry this with me now and the memory of this. Will the Lord carry the memory of that? No. We can argue and quibble over all the various things that happened during the pandemic. And we can debate and argue over whether or not something was or was not a sin. The Apostle Paul tells us anything done, not done from faith is sin. And so where you're at now is you're looking back at all of these different things that have transpired and you're second-guessing yourself. And, you know, I wasn't in your heart and I wasn't in your head. And so you bring all of these things and you lay them down. You're like, this is sin. I don't know that the Lord can forgive me of all this. And we start to like nitpick and we're like, eh, I don't think that was a sin. Maybe that was, I, you know. At the end of the day, it's a useless accounting exercise. Do you know why? Because the moment you trusted in Jesus, he took your sin, all of it, past, present, and future. And he carried it forever away. Say, can I come back? Always. Always. Because of what Jesus has done for you. The question is not, can I come back? The question is, please love the Lord Jesus. Don't this is the question. Don't you love Jesus? About a month ago, we had our first heat wave, and the family decided we would go for a walk around MacArthur Park, and we would go to the Starbucks there at the corner of 12th and uh, Tranquil and get, a, get an ice cap, a frappuccino. And uh, I don't really like ice caps, but everybody wanted to go, so I went with them. And uh, about halfway around Mac Park, we're walking our way there to this Starbucks to get this coffee. My son had, the, the day before, he had uh, just put his flip-flops on for the first time and had run all over the yard and played all day in his flip-flops, and he hadn't been used to it because he'd been wearing tennis shoes, and wouldn't you know it, he rubbed blisters between his big toe and his little toe where the little, the little thong of the flip-flop goes, and his feet were blistered, and here we are, it's about a mile walk, all told, from our house to this Starbucks, and here we are about a half mile in. And uh, he's ruptured those blisters, and he's, he's bleeding all over his flip-flops. And at one point, he had taken his flip-flops off, and he was walking on the hot, hot concrete. And then he was burning his feet, and so he was running to the grass. And we're walking along, and he's like darting from patch of grass to patch of grass, trying to keep up with us. And he just kept falling further and further behind. And then, in desperation, he fell down, and he just started to cry because he had given up. And so I said to Shanti, you know what? You go ahead with the girls. And I'll go get my son, and I'll, I'll, deal with, I'll deal with the situation. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went to Ben, and I said, you can't walk in these flip-flops. It's tearing your feet apart. And he's crying. He's like, I know, Dad. So I said, let me carry you. And he said, I love you, Dad, but you're pretty sweaty. <laughs> Well, what's the alternative, kid? You know, like, 
I said, it'll, it'll be all right, Ben. I'll, I'll carry you. And so I pick him up, and I go to put him on my shoulders. And I put him, as soon as I put him on my shoulders, I'm getting jabbed in my neck, and sharp things are cutting into my carotid. And I feel like I'm, he starts to you know, squeeze with his legs to hold on. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is going on here? So I take him off, and I put him on the ground. I'm like, what is in your pockets? <laughs> and he starts to pull out Pokemon cards and pencils and crayons and a notebook. And I was like, what are you doing with a notebook, man? We're going for a walk to get coffee. He was like, I thought I would just stop as we had occasion and sketch pictures of birds and things I saw in the park. And I'm like, that's nuts because we're not stopping. It's hot out here. We're cruising. We're going. I'm not stopping to draw pictures of birds. I don't know what you're thinking. He was so despairing. And he said, I'm never going to make it to Starbucks to get that coffee. Now, the nature of his feet was such that he really needed to go back and get a Band-Aid, have him disinfected and cleaned. So I took all of his stuff out of his pockets. I put him on my shoulders, and he had a hat. He was sweaty. He didn't want to wear his hat anymore. He's got like this winter, you know, fur thing. It's like, why are you wearing that in 35 degree? Whatever. It's, you know, kids, right? So he takes the hat off. I'm like, I will carry you, and I will carry all of your things. And, of course, I was not wearing a pair of shorts that had any pockets. So there I am with my son with his legs draped over my shoulders, and I've got my arms kind of like holding onto his legs, and I've got all this stuff, Pokemon cards and pencils and notebooks. I couldn't hold the hat, so I took the hat, and I just kind of tucked it inside my waistband. And then the flip-flops, I didn't know what to do with those, so I tucked the flip-flops on the sides. So there I am, walking along, and my son decides he's tired, he wants to take a nap, so he kind of just lays himself (laughs) over my head with his hands draped over my face, and he's hot, and I'm already sweating, and so now I'm just really sweating. And people are walking past us, and they're like, you know, and you can just tell what they're saying. It's like I got all this weird stuff tucked in my waistband and my underwear and all this other kind of weird stuff. It's like, oh, my goodness, like, what is this? And I carried him home, and I put him down, and I took care of his feet. Disinfectant, Band-Aids, the whole bit. And then eventually Shanti came back with his ice cap, and he was so worried he wasn't going to get the coffee, and he got to drink it. And I was just enjoying the air conditioning at this moment. I was like, whew, I'm so glad that's over with. And my son comes to me and he says, Dad, I love you. Thank you for carrying me home. I bicker and moan and complain about the heat and all the weird random stuff I had to carry. But I rejoice in the fact that my son loves me and that I love him and that we have a relationship. You sit here today and you say, I've done things, I've committed sins, I've engaged in stuff that I'm not proud of. Will the Lord have me back? Hear what Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
all these people in Israel at this time, they've been told their whole lives they're sinners. They'll never be as righteous as the Pharisees. And yet here comes the Savior, healing freely without price. And eating and drinking with these sinners. And the Pharisees in their righteousness says, what's this guy doing eating with these wicked people? And Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6. And in Hosea chapter 6, he quotes it from the Septuagint, which says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But if you take your ESV Bible and you actually flip to Hosea chapter 6 and you read it in the original Masoretic text, the ESV translates it correctly. I desire love and not sacrifice. Do you know what God wants from you? You think perfection, you think wrongly. Jesus has taken care of your account. It's dealt with, it's paid forever. The question is not, can I come back? The question I put to you this morning is, do you love Jesus? Because he has made a way for you to have a personal relationship with him forever. That can never be undone by anything. This morning, as we conclude, I tell you this. What God wants is for you to depend upon him, to climb upon his shoulders, and to let him carry all your stuff away so that he can know you and you can know him and that he can love you and you can love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much. Oh, God, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. I'm free forever because of what Jesus did. I'm not perfect, but man, I want your help. I want to be better than what I am. And I rejoice, Lord, to know that you are working to sanctify me and to make me into that saint that you have already declared me righteous. And now you are bringing to completion the good work that you have started. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters who are here today who might be struggling with those same kinds of doubts. They have baggage. They have things in their life that they're tired of carrying. They're not sure they can come back to you because they're worried maybe you're not going to carry it. God, help them to know. As David, the adulterer, says in Psalm 32, blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sins. And help them to rest in the gospel of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.